At a time when the planet is in peril, some would say that financial institutions aren't doing enough to help reverse course. Others would say that financial institutions aren't doing anything. But one person insists that banks and the like are actually accelerating the destruction of the planet and she is not above taking rocks to windows and destroying to give banks a taste of their own medicine. Today on the podcast, Gail Bradbrook, a British environmental activist and the founder of the environmental social movement Extinction Rebellion, explains what she does and why she does it that way. The two D's have her on Dave and Darm Demystified. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Demystify show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dar Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Dar Demystify show. And this week, I'm not sure what we're kind of really demystifying, but we do have a very special guest, Gail Bradbrook from Extinction Rebellion. Now, some of us have seen or heard of them, but I'm imagining that because our audience is quite global, that not too many others have. So, Gail, do you want to give us an introduction to yourself and tell us a bit about what you're doing? Sure, thanks. Yeah, so I'm a trained scientist. I've got a PhD in molecular biophysics and I'm a mother. And I started a movement called Extinction Rebellion with others in 2018. It spread to 75 countries and over a thousand groups very quickly. And in 2019, we were named as the biggest influencer on the climate agenda in the globe. So someone described us as the fastest growing startup ever known. (laughs) It was an incredible time. We use the time-honoured traditions of civil disobedience, peaceful means, to highlight and raise the issue of the climate and ecological crisis. We've done that through methods that most people find difficult. You know, they have problems with it. People get disrupted or we've peacefully broken windows. (laughs) I have myself. So taking actions that many people would say, we agree with what you're saying, but we don't like your methods. And Extinction Rebellion was founded on deep research into how to do what's called momentum-driven organising to grow social movement and how to use the tactics of non-violent civil disobedience. And the basic point is that other things don't work. You know, you can write to your MP, you can sign a petition, give money to an NGO and so on. On the whole, it's not seen the change that we needed. And all that Extinction Rebellion's achieved at the moment is to raise the issue and to sort of see off climate denial. But we're still in the age of crisis. And so there's still much more to figure out together beyond that initial wave of awareness raising. I mean, as we sit here today, we've just had record temperatures broken in the UK, I think, last week. 
the US is under another heat dome. So it was fascinating to see the response to that. At one level, you had people going, oh my God, this is really an indicator for climate change. And then at the other level, you've got people going, well, phew, what a scorcher. This is what summer's all about type thing. And I guess that sort of whole thing about how do you raise people's understanding of this? How do you get it into their consciousness in a way that works? I was really interested that one of the protests you did last week, which was with JP Morgan. What I loved about it was that actually when you went behind the scenes in terms of the doctors themselves and looked at what they were saying, they're so eloquent and so expert. And it's just for me a really interesting protest. Yeah, we've often wanted and it's worked out to have people leading some of our protests who will bring a certain meaning to that form of protest. So having doctors who are saying, look, we're having this major health crisis now with this level of heat and it's been predicted and it's actually going quicker than people think. And the biggest funders of climate change globally as a bank is JP Morgan. It's not acceptable. And so we're here to let them know by breaking the windows. We have a tradition in the UK with the suffragettes who broke windows and they said they were following the Chartists and that is the ways in which ordinary people got the vote in this country. In fact, Emily Pankhurst, the leader of the suffragettes, said there's no greater argument in modern politics than that of the broken pane. <laughs> so the media, as far as we're concerned in Extinction Rebellion, is largely largely captured to corporate interest, to keeping a system and business as usual alive, which lines the pockets of some people. I mean, I learned today that seven in 10 people in the States think the economy is rigged. It's not only is it rigged in favour of rich people, but some rich people buy up newspapers and then tell us everything's fine and what a scorcher, right? And so it's down to our doctors to tell us that this is not okay. And in fact, from a climate science point of view and from a meteorological point of view, you've got the climate and weather, sometimes when you break a record, you might break it by about, you know, 0.1 of a degree, it goes up. This went up by, I think, one and a half degrees, right? It's unprecedented. And the thing with heat, people need to think about three main impacts. One is that it destroys infrastructure. So people complain about XR and say, look at them damaging a window. Like, hang about, the runways were like literally melting, you know, railways were falling to pieces. Infrastructure will get vastly damaged with great heat, right? The second thing is that food won't grow. You know, certain plants that you can spend months tending, suddenly they're baked and scorched in the earth and they won't grow. Same with floods. So you can have either. And the bread baskets of the world, there's several. If they fail collectively, or several of them do, multi-bread basket failure, it's called by academics, there won't be enough food to eat. People are going to starve. And then the third impact of heat with the heat domes is when you're reaching what's called wet bulb temperatures, which is when it gets so hot that the human body can't survive. And within six hours, an entire city will die. And we're getting very close to that in some places. And obviously, if you're vulnerable, then you're more likely for the temperature for your body to be lower, that you're at risk. So it really is quite offensive when people go, what a scorch, you know, and sort of laugh it off. We haven't got the figures in yet, as far as I know, but there'll be an increase in deaths in that period. And to just try and make a joke of it is really quite disgusting, isn't it? You know? It is. And I guess that's why I thought the doctor thing was so interesting, because one of the doctors, I think, was a psychiatrist and she specialises in dementia. And she was just talking about, like, as you say, vulnerable people who aren't able to deal with these things on their own necessarily are going to get ill, you know. And I think we probably all know people, friends or family with dementia. It really brought it home to me that actually 
this is really serious stuff. And I guess that's the thing which is kind of interesting, that imperative I don't feel has been reached. I always think when I see the XR protests that it's getting people to think that when something like these heat domes happen, it does really make some people go, well, this has got to change. And I think that's all part of the movement, isn't it, in terms of what needs to happen? Yeah, I think that people are understanding that we're in a climate and ecological crisis and an ecological crisis as well. So the other side of it is that we're in the sixth mass extinction event, you know, life on Earth is dying at a scary rate. And then you've got pollution issues of the air and the water and the seas. You've also got soil. We won't be able to harvest food from the soils are so degraded. I mean, real prophet of doom, but it's all factually, I'm quite a cheery person generally. It's all factually correct information. So one of the things with dementia is there's a link between air pollution and dementia. Yeah. We already know 64,000 people in the UK die, so I'm very UK focused of air pollution. And I think the rest of it's something like that one in two people will die of some kind of pollution related disease. I mean, there was an article in the Times all about it today. And it's actually extraordinary when you look at it that we're living our lives and accepting this. I don't think people are except David in a way. I mean, I learned that every two weeks we're swallowing about a credit card size worth of plastic and that's changing our children. It's making people less fertile. So what happens to people is they get bits of this information, you know, one bad headline here, one bit of information there. It's when you actually stop and you look at it fully in the face. And I don't think that many people have done this really. Looked at it completely in its face and gone, oh my God, right? By 2050, when the children that we're all caring about now are gonna be wanting to have their own families, we're talking about mass starvation, half the planet dying. We're talking about the collapse of civilization and we're just carrying on and people feel like a real lack of agency around it and there's no real leadership on the issue you know we've got this tory party leadership race at the minute i don't give a shit about climate and ecological crisis if i'd say something <laughs> sorry for my french there oh no, no god you carry on with <laughs> shit but they, that's why i'm interested to come on podcasts to talk a bit about people in the world of finance because we really have to wrestle with the underlying causes of this and understand that our systems are captured to a rapacious, extractive, excretive sort of system that's driven by profit, it has no purpose other than to make more money, for money to make more money, right? It doesn't have any sort of good social purpose behind it. And what happens within that kind of system is it promotes people who is willing to go along with it one way or another. I think in neurobiology, actually, one of our hemispheres is more dominant at the minute. It shouldn't be the left hemisphere, the calculator, the abstractor. And it does this thing. It just makes stuff up. It's called confabulation to fit its own story. And it's sort of happening systemically yeah. that we're destroying life on Earth and we won't look at the reasons why collectively and change it. And those that are in power are either lying to us or sort of deliberately, and that's what you know the UN Secretary General said, refusing to face reality for what it is. And activists like myself, when we say anything about it, you're sort of labelled as an anarchist, anti-capitalist, some, some trope that means you're stupid, you don't know about real economics and you need to grow up or something, you know, you don't like business, you don't like finance. And I keep saying we need a grown-up conversation about our economic system. Yeah, just coming back to the banks though, right? What is it they could do immediately? Because we hear all this stuff about they shouldn't be investing in fossil fuel companies, blah, blah, blah. But I always come back to this football analogy sometimes, right? Because people complain about 
the wages that some of the players earn. But then, especially in American basketball, Jordan had a billion dollar industry around him, right? And yes, he earned a lot of money, but he created massive amount of jobs as well, right? And the same can be said, right? I'm not making an excuse for banks, but this is what I also hear. Hold on one sec. If we stopped investing in fossil fuel companies, there'll be tens of thousands of people without jobs. And then how do we ship food around everywhere if people stop using fossil fuels, blah, 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 blah. First of all, the jobs argument, you have to have a transition and like there's lots and lots of work that needs to be done as part of that transition. And you can't really trust these banks because behind the scenes, they're basically lobbying. There was a report out in March, I think. They're lobbying against the kind of systemic changes that would make a difference. So I think part of what you're saying is that there's a sort of systemic reason why things are the way they are and the banks are sort of part of that. And I agree with that. And I think if a bank didn't invest, somebody else will in some hedge fund or whatever. So divestment ultimately is not the thing that's most needed, right? But they're not doing it out of the kindness of their heart for jobs. They don't give a, <laughs> Sorry, they don't give a toss about jobs, right? I mean, it's not what they're about. They're about profit. And so I had a Chatham House conversation facilitated by Chris Skinner on the financer with a former vice chairman of a major high street bank. And he said that Barclays Bank employees and the chief executive, they wanted faster change, but the chief executive didn't feel like he could make that change because of the system that he was in that was requiring this sort of profit growth thing, right? When we break the windows of the banks as XR's money rebellion, what we say is what the most important thing that banks can do is tell the truth, that they're incentivized to harm the planet. But then what they need to do is champion citizens participatory democracy like global assemblies to rewire the economic system that we have in a way that won't allow that level of harm to happen so they have to lobby for good things to happen but they're actually doing the opposite they're saying this behind the scenes in chatham house conversations but they won't say it publicly and the emperor's got no clothes on and they need to name it they know what the problem is it's sort of like i think that the system for some people it stresses them out you know it extracts so much you have parts of the world that are called sacrifice zones you know that people are so abused in those places so people are thrown to the doggy and then you've got some of us that are sort of cajoled into going along with it because you know if you don't really you'll get paid more if you do this or you're going to get punished if you don't do that and for some people there's a direct seduction to support the system, to lie on its behalf or to not be truthful. And I think it's contingent on each of us to work out what our place in this system is, how we're holding it in place and how we can use our bodies and our positions to be more truthful. One of the most sort of honest things I feel like I've ever done is go up to Barclays Bank and pop their window at six o'clock in the morning. Obviously, I'll probably face consequences for that. We're waiting for the court case to come. My house was raided at... 5.30 in the morning one time, I was accused of trying to bring down the entire finance system. Wow. <laughs> you know, they could send me to jail for 10 years. It's a thing. But it's hilarious given the finance system always brought itself down. And we're talking about the collapse of civilization. I asked them, you know, how many bankers have you arrested recently? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Especially after 2007, right? Last year, I was a bit head in the sands about all of this stuff. And then I wrote an article about the impact of climate change on financial services. It was a topic I was interested in. Yeah, yeah. And the thing which scared me the most is the people who seem to be the most vociferous in terms of 
the need for change and urgency were the central bankers. Mm -hmm. So you have this group of central bankers who are basically with access to lots of information saying, forget 2050, it's happening now. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got then people like Mark Carney who are very involved, the central bankers who, you know, have access into government and policy who can see that the system is going to collapse, I guess, if things don't change. And then you've got the businesses themselves, which are driven by profit and for whatever reason they're being driven by. How do you square that circle? Because it sort of seems like different bits of the finance industry are more activist than other parts. Yeah, I just want to say I feel quite feisty today. I've got PMT and I'm right. on my second cup of tea right. and I feel a bit shouty, do you know what I mean? And I'm a bit like, oh God, I don't want to come across like one of them shouty no, no, no. But that's how I'm feeling, uh, right? No, I, I think don't... it's passion. It's passion <laughs> you know that, you are not. Okay. No, it's good. It's good. You know that joke that says how many women with PMT does it take to change a light bulb? Do you know that one? No. It's six. And then you're supposed to say, why is it? Why is it just is right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit in that mood today. So <laughs> just trying to calm down a bit. You know, the IPCC is the place where the consensus around climate science gets agreed, but they don't have all the data. So it's usually like worse than what the IPCC are saying. And just to tackle this thing about 2050, right? The whole point is how much carbon gets released in the atmosphere. Talk about the carbon budget, right? There isn't a carbon budget. We've got too much carbon in the atmosphere now. So forget any date that you've been given we need to take carbon out of the atmosphere the science is clear right if we're going to allow ourselves some dates the whole point of the science is saying stop as soon as possible and reduce the emissions right right, right. if you give yourself a date that's 2050 it doesn't mean you can carry on happily up until 2050 and stop because of all the carbon that you're going to emit before then what you've got to do is cut even faster sooner because you're allowing yourself a longer tail to get to so-called net zero so it doesn't matter what date you pull up stop lying to ourselves with these dates as well what we say in xr is we're fucked you know we're already fucked and it's going to get worse and we just got to get on with it and the sort of best analogy really is i don't really like using the analogy of a war but you know when a war when that kind of thing happens everybody accepts that we have to have a complete change of society and deal with this major existential threat well, this is 20 times at least right so that's the thing we haven't got time we've got to get on with it there's a frontiers paper can you carry on having economic growth, but you cut carbon emissions. And you had a bit of a sign of that in the UK when you closed down coal-fired power stations. So they keep quoting that bit. You can listen when they're talking, the politicians are talking about climate change. They sort of always talk back to the 1990s. Think, why do they keep going back to the 1990s? You know, why are they taking the data that far back? Because we closed coal-fired power stations, so it looks better. But basically, there is no decoupling that carries on. The UK's carbon footprint went up. And I keep thinking, you know, do they measure their penis from behind their testicles or something? (laughs) How far back do they want to go? Tip for the future, Dom. (laughs) (laughs) Just making stuff up. So that's really interesting because I thought the UK was one of the few economies where we were reducing our carbon footprint. So what it is, there's these different ways of carbon accounting. 
One's called territorial emissions and consumption-based emissions. So it's like if you want to measure carbon that you're actually responsible for, so all the crap that you just bought in the last few months, and I'm guilty like everybody else, right? What's the embedded carbon in that? That's your carbon footprint. If you measure that, it went up. If you go, oh, well, you know, that thing came from China. China's responsible for it, even though I like personally created the demand and bought it. <laughs> then you can make it look like China's emissions gone up. Right, right. Okay. With certain emissions, like flying and some of the consumption, they don't ascribe it to anybody. It's like sort of God's in charge of those emissions or something. Well, it is. It's up in the air. I mean, that's... <laughs> There's no global standard, so obviously a country, its politicians choose whatever's going to make them look good. So just to go back to your bankers' points, right, and the central bankers, unfortunately, they're using some really dodgy data from this guy called Nordhaus, who got a Nobel Prize for climate economics and they use these things called integrated assessment models and it has things like discounted and damage functions in i mean i just sort of barely understand it but they've been thoroughly debunked by this economist steve Keen and by climate scientists the damage functions that they use how much damage this is going to do is nothing compared to what climate science says if you think about it when pandemics grow with climate, you get food systems collapse, civilizational collapse, that you can't measure that. That's not a damage issue. That's a sort of game over moment, right? So this really spurious data to the point that a leading climate scientist, Professor Kevin Anderson from the Tyndall Centre in Manchester said, you know, don't trust economists with any numbers other than page numbers. <laughs> you know, that's a degree of respect that the climate scientists have got for the economists who are, right. who are given the rationale for business as usual carrying on. The central banks then go, oh, that's a justification for saying that we can grow our way out of this problem through like ESG right, right, right. focused investing, right? And yet there is a green swan paper created by the Bank of International Settlements, you know, Bank for Central Bankers, saying that we probably need to start questioning economic growth. And that's so fundamental to the world order, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's quite a penny light bulb moment for me. Going back to banks again, is it the banks or could there be something done at more government level to say companies over a certain size can only make a certain amount of profit? Anything in excess of that is the tax that's going to be to solve real world problems. Yeah. Cap the growth. Is that what you're really saying? It's not like all growth is bad. Yeah, yeah. If you're a startup company making some vegan food that people are going to enjoy eating or whatever, or a regenerative farm, we need these two companies to grow. If you're a country that has economic activity, a certain amount of growth is beneficial to people, but then it tanks off, right? So you can measure the benefits in a society using other indicators other than GDP. So there's something called the Genuine Progress Indicator, or you could use Kate Rayworth's donut economics to sort of measure social and environmental costs. So there are all sorts of measures out there seeing are we actually doing anything good here or not? So decide what you want to do. Then systems level things, you know, the one that keeps being lobbied against is a carbon tax. Given that the big companies are lobbying against it, <laughs> makes me think it's a good idea. And, and some people talk more about carbon rationing, that you get a certain amount. Yeah. Everybody gets a certain amount. And then if you want more, because you want to fly off on your private jet, you're going to have to redistribute some wealth. The baseline of this is global inequality is so horrendous that people have ridiculous amounts of power, you know, a couple of thousand billionaires, and then the rest of the planet feels like they've got no agency. You're so right. 
this whole thing which is really troubling about you mentioned billionaires i looked at roman abramovich's carbon footprint which is more than the whole of montserrat and you go well hang on Forget his dealings with the Russians. He's literally got a bigger carbon footprint than a country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like incensed by that because, yeah. you know, here am I trying to use the tumble dryer less often. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Thanks to COVID, managed to get my carbon footprint down. So I think things like the kind of protests you're doing are just a way of galvanizing people's understanding around a lot of this stuff, which I think is so, so super critical. You know, somebody I was talking to say, well, you know, the kids are all going to solve it. The kids are all going to suffer. Passing the back. Yeah. And I'm like, hang on, the kids need to be helped. What you're saying, the societal change, which means that the goalposts move into something equitable in terms of the planet. I mean, there was a McKinsey report a couple of years ago, and they were quoting the Deutsche Bank economists, and they'd said, either we tackle economic growth like the greenies want in which case everything's going to change or we let economic growth carry on and it destroys the planet in which case everything's going to change and the mckinsey person said on the one hand this civilization's screwed on the other hand this civilization's screwed and that's what we have to get our heads around this wave is yeah. finished it's just a matter of when i mean you had a taste with covid you had big businesses saying no oh, we want you know we need to be bailed out and we need to have government putting these lockdowns we need strong regulations nobody gets to have a party where everybody else has to be the same yeah 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 but when it comes to global finance and global economics we all have to sort of be left to come up with our own rules and trust us and it's nonsense if we could corral all the ceos of the banks in the uk let's yeah. say what would be the three immediate things that you'd want from them tell the truth about the system as it is right yeah it's incentivizing them to harm the planet. Be truthful about it. Because the Chatham House guy was truthful about it with me, but he's not saying it publicly. So come out and tell the truth. And then lobby for things like the redistributive carbon tax, you know. Stop doing all the harmful stuff you're doing, you know. Like be honest about what you're doing. A lot of people aren't genuinely reporting what they're doing on the climate front negatively and be what their climate risks are because it can say they're gonna go net zero by twenty fifty or whatever and then start giving money to new coal mines. It's just nonsense, right? So we also want them to stop doing really obvious new harmful things. I mean, nobody expects them to just immediately withdraw all their money tomorrow. That's going to take some time. But I honestly think the most important thing at the minute is that we face the facts and stop making this an argument. What people want to argue about is capitalism and socialism. Like they're two things that couldn't ever be blended for the better parts of each of them. Yeah. So the other thing we would want from your hypothetical bunch of bankers is to champion a global assembly to rewire the economic system. Right. The national governments to take their lead, you know. We've got a letter online called Leaders for Global Assemblies that people can sign, and it gives an example of some of the systemic things that could be changed, like the tax rules, um, built-in obsolescence. There's all sorts of stuff that could be changed, and there's power at different levels for that change to happen. Some of them are global. Some of them, there are global influencers like the WEF. National governments have got some say over some of that stuff. I mean, there are problems, because I don't know if you know that corporations, fossil fuel corporations, can sue entire countries if they create climate policies. They have these investor state dispute settlements. They have courts where they can take countries to court. Wow. It's on the Global Justice Now website. There are about 15 live at the minute where British oil companies are suing the Italian government, I think, for climate regulations. 
So one of the things that the bankers could champion is what's called the law of ecocide, the international law of ecocide. So you have these Rome statutes, which is the, at the UN level, the biggest, most impactful law. So it's got the crimes of aggression, war crimes, crimes of genocide, the major crimes against peace, the biggest we want to add the law of ecocide, which would say if you're a person with significant power, whether you're on a board of a company or an MP or, you know, politician or whatever, and you are personally responsible for decisions that create mass damage and destruction of the natural environment, that you personally will be prosecuted and be jailed for that behaviour so that people can't hide behind limited yeah, liability right. companies. And there are lots of people championing that now. We, just, we need that to really take shape. From a personal note, I just want to say thank you for all the work that you're doing, the risk that you're taking. You know, it's the most important agenda on the planet at the moment, right? Without this, we don't have a planet. So I'd really like to say thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for coming on to the show and your time. And, you know, I really hope that we can instill some change in the banking system. What we'll try to do is farm some of the things you've talked about and provide links to people, because I think there will be a lot of people who like to kind of understand more about what's going on. Thank you so much for being so good at pointing us in the right direction. You know, I've been on a bit of a, like I said, PMT rant, but I want us to believe in ourselves and the possibility of change and not to sink into despair with this, but to actually feel that agency and that togetherness. Brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Dom Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.